Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Jesus, the King Who Came to Die, a study of the Gospel of Mark. This dynamic, fast-paced book gives the story of Jesus the Messiah, God's Son, the King, who came to suffer and die to save His people. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's Word in your life today. We are, uh, we are going to be starting a new series uh, this morning on the Gospel of Mark. Uh, and Mark is a long book, so this will run until Jesus returns or I die. Uh, no, no it, it will. This will we'll, we'll take a couple of breaks. This series is going to be lasting for 18 months or two years. It'll take a long time to work through the Gospel of Mark, but that's okay. We're just going to journey with Jesus and the disciples um, and spend time with them. So we'll be starting this series. We're calling it Jesus, the King Who Came to Die. And uh, today is just a way of introduction. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 1, verse 1, just the very first verse. We're going to be looking at the beginning of the gospel. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, encourage you to hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As I, you know, spent a lot of time this summer, I, I spent uh, a lot of time in Mark's gospel. Uh, I was fortunate enough to, to read the whole thing through in Greek and listen to it. And I listened to it a few times in English and just spending time meditating on the gospel, Mark 1.1 kind of stands out because it's really kind of a summary of the whole book. And it reminded me as I was thinking about it, I'm a fan of the Lord of the Rings, and the Lord of the Rings movies actually came out 21 years ago. They came out in 2001, The Fellowship of the Rings. And I even, as I was getting ready, I, I re-watched it this week. And at the very beginning of that movie, they, they did kind of this preview that lasted for like five minutes where they were kind of giving you a synopsis of what the rings were about. They were kind of filling you in on Tolkien's world, kind of letting you have some idea. For those who were very familiar with the stories, it just kind of whetted your appetite, you know, and oriented things. It's like, oh, we're really going. For those who had no understanding whatsoever, were coming into this completely new, like a blank slate, it gave them a quick orientation so they had some idea of what in the world was going to be happening in this series of movies. And a good preview or a good synopsis does that. And that's exactly what Mark is doing here. And we're going to see he's really kind of operating on two levels. Mark's giving a preview of his whole book. It's really a summary of the whole book here in this first verse. And if you are familiar with the Jewish scriptures, if you're familiar with what the story that was going on there, there's all kinds of things you can lay a hold of and say, oh, oh, okay, so now we're going to be seeing how this works out. On the other hand, if you were a Gentile and you'd never heard anything about this, it kind of starts to orient you in to some of the big things you're going to need to be paying attention to. So it kind of is fulfilling the same purpose that it did there in that movie. We're going to look at this preview of the whole book um, and kind of working through it. Now, what I'm not going to do today is a traditional, you know, kind of here's the background of Mark's gospel. I actually did that in After Hours that came out a few days ago. You can take time and listen. I'll explain who Mark was, where he got his information from, which in short is Peter, 
um, when the gospel was probably written and all that kind of stuff I did in after hours and in the one that I've already filmed for this week I'll be kind of talking about why four gospels and Mark's relationship to the others a little bit today we're not going to do that we're just going to kind of pick the book up and start where Mark starts and see that he's giving us this little quick preview to get us oriented for where we're going to go on this journey. So what I'm going to do is we're actually just going to work through basically every word in this verse because all of them are very important in orienting us uh, to, uh, to this. And, and by the way, as you do this, you know, in ancient books, they oftentimes didn't write titles. They wouldn't write a title the way we would do it. Oftentimes, the very first sentence served as the title of the book. That's what it was known as, uh, as that. And so scholars debate, did Mark mean this to be the title of the book, or was this actually the first sentence? And the answer is probably yes. It is actually both of those things. So let's dive in and take a look. So notice the very first thing Mark says is this is the beginning of the gospel about Jesus. Now, interestingly enough, for a lot of reasons, scholars think that Mark is the first gospel written, that actually Matthew and Luke used Mark as a source for their own gospels uh, to in, in what they are writing. Um, and it's probably the very first one, and obviously this verse is the very beginning of this very first gospel. However, so if you're new and you've never heard anything about it, you're like, okay, you know, this is the way we start. A long, long time ago, in a kingdom far, far away, this is what went on. That's kind of what Mark is doing, the beginning. But on the other level, if you're familiar with the biblical story and I say the beginning, where do we think about we go back to Genesis, right? Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, where we read, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And Mark is using the same word here because something specific is going on. He, he wants to reference back to that. And if you look in John's gospel, John does the exact same thing when he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and everything was made through him. John does this prologue at the beginning that links you back to Genesis. Well, Mark is actually doing the same thing here. He's linking you back to the, the narrative that begins in Genesis. And so there's two things that Mark is doing here. Number one, he's letting us know this is a continuation of the Old Testament. Okay? It's continuing the story. Now, one way that we know he's doing this is the very next verse, Mark chapter 1, verse 2, says this. It is written in Isaiah the prophet. So Mark says, here's the beginning, and then the very first thing he does after that is he actually quotes from the Old Testament. He's giving this link back to the Old Testament. And so he's saying, look, the gospel, as we're going to see, announces something new. The gospel is about things that are being new. But Mark's saying it's not new in that it's unrelated to anything that's ever gone on before. It's new in that it's the fulfillment of everything that went on before. We're entering into a new age. This is a new time. But it is related to the Old Testament. And this is important because Mark quotes the Old Testament directly less than the other three gospels do. But that does not mean he's not thinking about the Old Testament. It's there. It's in the background. If you, if you pick up on it, you know, in the Lord of the Rings analogy, Tolkien doesn't always say, and this goes back to this other thing, but the more you know the story, the more you kind of pick up, oh, he's linking this together. Well, that's exactly what's happening in Mark's gospel. It's a foundation of everything else. This first gospel that's being written here is not 
coming out of nowhere. It's a fulfillment. It's linked back to uh, the Old Testament. And specifically, it's linked back to that book of Genesis there, the beginning of creation. Because in Genesis, the beginning is the beginning of creation. But in this book, what we're going to go through is the beginning of the new creation, the recreation of all things. So one of the commentators, James Edwards, and his commentary on Mark and this verse says this, for Mark, the introduction of Jesus is no less momentous than the creation of the world. For in Jesus, a new creation is at hand. Now again, if you're a Gentile reading this, they didn't pick up on a lot of that. But if you're us and you're a little bit more acclimated to the story, you can start to see what Mark's saying. He's saying, look, this is, this is momentous. History is having a climactic moment right now. There was a creation. Now there is a new creation, a recreation that is going to happen. And so this book's a continuation of the story of God's work in the Old Testament, beginning at creation and moving all the way through the history of Israel. Number two, Mark comes in and says it's the beginning of the gospel. Now what's interesting is, of course, we look and we see, you know, our, our Bibles oftentimes have the gospel according to Mark. That actually wasn't added until the second century. It was a little bit later that they actually referred to these books as the Gospels. Um, so, so Mark wasn't saying in, in that sense of this is, the, I'm, I'm, this is the beginning of the first book that are later going to be called Gospels. He's speaking specifically of this is the beginning of the gospel or what is known as the good news. And again, we're going to see it operates on two levels. In the Greco-Roman world, there was a gospel. There was the good news. And it was usually related to the birth and acts of the emperor. Because what they would say was when this emperor was born, it was good news because everything changed. And of course, when he died and another emperor was born, we had good news again because everything changed. Because really, nothing had changed. But here, for example, notice this. This writing here, it's called the Preene Calendar Inscription. It is about the Emperor Augustus, who was alive at this time. And it says, since the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the good news... The Evangelion, the same exact word. So notice, the beginning of the good news is the same phrase that Mark used. And this was in an inscription for the Roman emperor. It says, it's the beginning of the good news for the world, and it came about by reason of him. The, the good news is because Augustus was born. So for people who knew nothing about Judaism in the background, when they hear good news, they think it's related to, oh, it's the birth of the king, it's the birth of the ruler, and it's, he's going to be bringing about a change. And Mark's kind of playing off on that and saying, yes, but I'm talking about the real king. I'm talking about the one whose birth really did change everything. These other emperors come and they go, and everything just continues on. I'm going to talk about the actual gospel, the actual good news for when the real king was born. So that's what one level that Mark's doing. But on another level, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, he's writing and he's writing in a way that the word gospel was really important, particularly for the prophet Isaiah. In the book of Isaiah, the word the gospel, the good news is used a number of times, 
particularly in Isaiah 40 to 66, where Isaiah is writing to the people who are going to be in exile, and he's letting them know that there is good news. God is going to come and bring salvation to his people. So I've got a couple of verses up here on the screen. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9, he says, you who bring good tidings to Zion. That is literally, it's just the verb form of gospel. It's you who gospelize, you who proclaim gospel to Zion. Go up on a high mountain, you who bring good tidings to Jerusalem. Same word again. Lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. So the gospel there is, look, you're in exile, you're struggling, everything seems to be best, but I have good news. God has come to your rescue. And Mark says, yes, he has in the person of Jesus Christ. If you move in, and by the way, we're going to come back and see in just a moment that the first quote from Isaiah that Mark's going to bring up is Isaiah chapter 40. It's just a couple of verses right before this. So he's not just taking this out of nowhere. There's a reason why he's bringing this up. In Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7, a verse that you may have heard before, how beautiful on the mountain are the feet of those who bring good news. Again, the same, it's in, Isaiah uses it as a verbal form because they're proclaiming the gospel. But same word, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings. Same word again. Who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. So notice the people are in exile. They seem bereft of hope. And the gospel comes to say, though you seem to be cut off from God, I'm pronouncing shalom. There is shalom between you and your God. I am bringing the good news that though it appears you are forgotten and though it appears the gods of Babylon are actually ruling and reigning, here's the good news. Your God reigns. And that means salvation for you. Finally, Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1. I'll just put that one up. You may have heard this verse before. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach what? Good news. Same word again, to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom from the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. Does anybody remember who quoted that verse? Jesus, on the very first time he uh, does his public ministry, Jesus quotes this verse from Isaiah. So, for the Gentiles, and now and again, you may say, well, how do we know Mark's thinking about it? Well, what's the very next verse that Mark, what does he do in the very next verse? If you look in Mark chapter 1, verse 2, if y'all can pop it up on the screen, um, the beginning of the gospel, it is written in Isaiah the prophet. So this isn't me just thinking of something. Mark has oriented us and said, I'm, why am I thinking about uh, Isaiah? Because Isaiah is the prophet of the gospel. Isaiah is the prophet who brings up. We're going to talk more about this next week. But notice what he's doing. So if you're a Gentile, you hear good news and you say, well, the gospel is about when the, when the king is born. And Mark says, yes, that's true. We're just going to be finding out who the king is. If you have a background in the Old Testament, you say, oh, well, the gospel is about when God comes to deliver and to save his exiled people, to pronounce shalom over them and to bring them salvation. And Mark says, yes, that's true as well. So it's working on both levels. Thirdly, and so this book is going to be about the gospel. There's a reason why the early church called these the gospel, the gospel according to Mark, because it is centered on that gospel. But notice the gospel here is not about Augustus like we just saw in the inscription. Who's the gospel about? 
Jesus. It is the beginning of the gospel about Jesus. Now the Greek here could be saying one of two things. It could be saying, because it's literally the gospel of Jesus. So it could be saying this is the gospel that Jesus proclaimed. I'm going to be telling you the gospel that Jesus proclaimed. That is possible, and it is true that we are told Jesus, in fact, did preach the gospel. In fact, just a few verses down in Mark chapter 1, verse 14, we're going to read this. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. Good news is gospel. He's proclaiming the gospel of God. So it is true that Jesus did proclaim the good news. But the real focus here is not just that Jesus proclaimed the gospel. It is that, if I can put it this way, Jesus is the gospel. Jesus is the good news. It is completely centered on him. And again, on that level where you may be thinking, oh yeah, the gospel, I got it. Augustus was born. No. No. The gospel is not about Augustus. And it's certainly not about Nero. The gospel is about Jesus. He is the one whom this story and message is centered on because he's the one who's actually going to accomplish the work. For the people to be saved, certain things are going to have to happen. We struggled a lot trying to come up with a title for the series. Uh, and, and thanks to my daughter, Steph, who actually finally came up with this because I was like, the, the, the themes in the book are that Jesus is the king, but it's that he suffers and dies. <laughs> so I'm trying to figure out how we come up with a phrase that captures his kingship and his suffering and dying. One, uh, uh, Tim Keller, who you may know of, their church in New York, when they did a series on Mark years ago, they called it King's Cross. Taking the, you know, kind of with the, the thing with uh, the, the station there in London. And the two halves of the book are about Jesus being announced as the king. And then the second half is about him suffering. And so here we see that it is all really about Jesus and how he's going to save. It's centered on his person and his work is what's going on. That's what's central. But we may be surprised what this king has to do to actually bring salvation. When we think of him, you know, stand on the mountains and shout, your God reigns, he does from a cross is how he's going to reign. So Mark's going to have to unpack this because there's actually almost a third level, if I can put it, which is many people who are familiar with the Old Testament stories have some misconceptions about those stories. And Mark's going to have to say, I'm going to have to do some work defining some words here. That leads us to the next word, actually, which is, it's the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ. Now, here's a little thing. Uh, Jesus Christ is not his full name, okay? Like I am Brett Hicks, okay? We use it that way oftentimes today, but it's really Jesus the Christ, Okay, that's what it really means. It's just that because he is the Christ, and that was repeated so often in the scriptures, it just came to be a thing. You no longer say Jesus the Christ, you just say Jesus Christ, because he's the true Christ. And so it's a title and it's an office. The, the Greek word Christos, from which we get Christ, you can obviously hear it there. In fact, you just drop off the last two letters and you have Christ, is the same as the Hebrew word Mashiach or Messiah. They're the same word. It's just, so when you hear somebody say Jesus is the Messiah and somebody say Jesus is the Christ, they're saying the exact same thing. One's just Hebrew, one is Greek. 
But the word Christ or Messiah means one who is anointed. Okay? So to anoint, to rub oil on one, uh, made one a Christ or a Messiah. And so what we're referring to here is Christ is the anointed one, the son of David. Now, again, if you lived in the ancient world, you understood anointing because it happened to kings. And in fact, we're actually going to see right now uh, with, with the queen having died this weekend, when King Charles is actually coronated, they're going to take him behind a screen and they are literally going to anoint him, going back to the Davidic kings. That's what they're doing. And they actually play a song by uh, Handel um, that is about uh, Zadok the priest and doing the anointing. See, Claire, I do know a little of my history, right? I'm not completely, you know, one of us rebels over here. So they're going to be doing that coming up right now. So Romans understood that. Kings got anointed. But if you really understand the biblical story, you know that it's really referring specifically to the Davidic king. And in Psalm chapter 2, which is a psalm, one of those two introductory psalms that, that go together to teach us how to read the book there. And in Psalm 2, it is about the Davidic king. And we read in uh, Psalm 2, 2, the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his... Christ, Mashiach, anointed one. That, that's what it is. We've translated it here as anointed one, but this is who it is. So God had promised, and they had been looking, that there was going to be a coming son of David who was going to save and rule over the people of God. That's what he was going to do. He was going to deliver them. He was going to fight the battle for them. But there's a problem here. By the time of Jesus, this term had gotten messed up pretty bad. Because who was the king going to save them from? According to the people of Jesus' day, who were they thinking they needed deliverance from? For, yeah, from the Romans, right? So he's going to ride in on a horse. He's going to meet Caesar in battle, and it's going to be a bloodbath, and he's going to wipe Caesar out and then push the Romans out, and we're going to live here in our little place in the promised land. That was how they viewed what the Messiah was going to do. You'll know he's the Messiah when he unsheaths the sword and chops off Caesar's head. Okay? For that reason, Jesus actually rarely uses the term Christ to refer to himself. He prefers the term son of man because it had not been messed up. And we're going to see in the gospel that he does this a lot. He kind of prefers the title son of man. But we're going to see actually the reason. Why doesn't Mark say Jesus the son of man here? Well, it's because the Old Testament term that was richest and that really applied was Christ. But it's going to take some reorientation. And so for that reason, the word Christ is hardly used in the first half of the gospel. Jesus never refers to himself that way. His followers don't refer to him that way. Uh, there, there's a few uh, you know, demonically possessed people and stuff who might, but, but they don't until we get to the hinge of the book. And at the hinge point of the book in Mark chapter 8, Jesus is walking with the disciples. And I love when he does this. They're walking down the road. They're all stumbling around, have no idea what's going on. And Jesus throws out a question and he says, uh, on the way he asked them, who do people say I am? And they start off. Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He said, who do you say I am? And Peter jumps out. And you got to love it because Peter's bold. He's the one who does it. 
And here, he gets it right. And he says, you are the Christ. And it's a huge moment. You remember, Jesus is like, you are right. I mean, I mean, Jesus, you can see the smile on his face, like all the stumbling and bumbling you guys are doing. You got it. You finally got it. But the amazing thing is, if you remember, Jesus immediately starts talking about what? I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be put to death. I'm going to be killed. And Peter, full of himself at the moment, does what? Oh, no, 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 Lord. You don't understand because the Messiah is the one that's going to come in and lop off the heads. You're not going to die. You're going to kill. And Jesus has to tell him, get behind me. You don't understand. From that point forward, the term Christ is going to get used six times in the gospel. But it's because Jesus is redefining it for them. Because from that point forward in the gospel, over and over and over again, we're told Jesus begins to clearly proclaim to them that he must die. This is what it means to be the Christ. So Mark really does it because the book's going to show that Jesus is the Christ, the long-awaited son of David, sent to save and rule the people of God. But what it's going to have to work is to say, how's he going to do that? Because the way he's going to do it is going to be a shock. It's going to, it's, nobody's going to see that coming, so to speak. Now, we know how the story goes, but to them, if you are new, this is going to be a shock. And then the last phrase is the Son of God. So it's the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So this one who's at the center of the book is the Son of God. But interestingly enough, this is another term that's all confused. Because the word Son of God does not always mean deity as we think of it, the one high eternal God. You saw just a couple of moments ago, how did they refer to the, the beginning of the gospel, uh, you know, from, from the birth of Augustus, and who, who did it say he was? God. Okay, well, they knew that he was not eternal. That's not what the Romans meant by it. The, the word was used all kinds of ways. Even in the Old Testament, the word Son of God is applied to angels. In uh, Job chapter 1, verse 6 and 2, verse 1, we read that the sons of God come and stand before the Lord, and one of them, Satan, comes to bring an accusation against Job. It's used in Psalm 82 where it says, I said you are gods to the, the powerful rulers, the, the, the judges. They, they sat in the place of a god almost. But most importantly, it's used of Israel, God's chosen. In Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, there's many places this is done, but in Hosea 11, 1, you may recognize this. Matthew actually uses this in his infancy narrative. It reads, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called who? My son. Because Israel is the son of God. That's the very phrase he'd used when Moses was sent to uh, tell Pharaoh to let them go. And then most importantly, that kind of got clarified down, focused down to the Davidic king. That king that we talked about represented the whole nation, and he was the son of God. So in Psalm 2, which we just quoted from a couple of minutes ago, we read this. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. You notice the NIV actually capitalizes the S for son, but they're doing that because they're reading it in light of the New Testament. Okay, at the time that, you know, they, first off, they didn't have capital letters in Hebrew. 
So they're, they're saying, in light of the full biblical revelation, the son that's being spoken of here is Jesus, the son of God. And they're absolutely correct. The New Testament tells us over and over again this is about him. But there had been this expectation that the Davidic king was somehow the son of God. The question is, what does that mean? And Mark is going to be using this book and defining for us what is meant when we say Jesus is the Son of God. Who do you say I am? Now the interesting thing is all of these terms come together at one key moment in the book. When Jesus is standing before the high priest and he's about to be condemned to death, the high priest asks him, are you the Christ the son of the blessed one. Now the, the somewhat comical thing to me here is, why does the high priest say the son of the blessed one instead of the son of God? Because he might sin if he took God's names on his lips wrong. So they didn't say the son of God. They would say the son of the blessed one. They would oftentimes say the kingdom of heaven. They would refer to God kind of, and it's called circumlocution. They'd go around. Now I find it kind of comical because you're so careful to not even use the word God while you are about to put God the Son to death. That's, that's religion for you right there. Okay? We're gonna, I'm going to you know, keep all of these little rules and rituals while I judge the Messiah who's standing in front of me. But that's exactly what's going on. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One, the Son of God? So he's linked those two. And notice Jesus says, I am. And then notice he says, and you will see who? The Son of Man. My favorite term that I've been using all along. I want you to understand Christ equals Son of God equals Son of Man. They're all the same person. And that person is the, the Son of God in the special sense who sits at the right hand of God, who rules and reigns over all things, who will come again. That person is the only begotten Son of God, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies, the one who rules over all creation. And one day I will not stand in front of you, you will stand in front of me. That's what's going on there in Mark chapter 14. So now, what I want us to do is, this, this is again kind of a lot of preview, so I want you to think back to that movie, you know, and if, if you've ever seen a movie or something where you're really into the books and you get in and they've got to kind of condense things, if you understand it, you can really unpack a lot, but they're doing it to help those who don't understand. Well, Mark's doing the same thing. So how do we apply this? What does this mean to us? The key issue that Mark wants us to grasp right up front that this book is about is who do I say Jesus is? Who is he? He's introducing Jesus, this central person for the entire gospel. And the whole gospel is driving at this question. Who do you say I am? Not, not well, it's nice that they say John the Baptist and some one of the prophets. Who do you say I am? And Mark's telling us there's a right answer and all other answers are wrong. The right answer is he's Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, the one who rules and reigns over all things, the one who comes and brings salvation for the people of God. That's who he is. All other answers are wrong. So notice here again, Mark 8, 29, you know, I remind you where Jesus says, but what about you? Who do you say I am? That is 
Jesus speaking to Peter. Now we have firm tradition that Mark got this gospel from Peter. Okay, that P- Peter's the one that passed this information on. Can you hear Peter almost preaching this to people and remembering that moment that Jesus looked at me? He said, yeah, I've, I've heard what other people say. Who do you say I am? And through Peter, Jesus was addressing every individual who was listening. And through me, he's right now addressing every individual who's listening. Because the important question is not who do mom and dad say I am, who does my spouse say I am, who does this person say I am, who do you say I am? Who do you and I say Jesus Christ is? See, everybody wants to find ways. I mean, you know, for a long time in Western civilization, it's been very popular to say Jesus is a great teacher. I mean, and, and you, you know, surely you Christians aren't going to have a problem. <clears throat> Wrong answer. He's not a great teacher. He's not a great teacher because he claimed to be God. So, If I claim something that is utterly false, I'm not a great teacher. If I teach you very well, you enjoy it and you go out and you say, that was the most awesome thing ever. I now know two plus two equals five. I'm not a great teacher. I might have been entertaining, but I just taught you a lie. Not a great teacher. The central message of Jesus Christ that is captured in this book is who he is. And he was very clear. And if he was wrong, he's not a great teacher. He's in fact a very wicked man. He's a great moral example. Once again, not if he's telling people your life depends on me. Not if he's telling like he's going to do later with the rich young man, go sell everything you have and come follow me because I am the way to eternal life. If he's not, he's not a good moral example. He's a liar. Okay? Everything hinges on what we say. He's not just a, you know, one of the things we're going to see in this gospel, because this is a very popular answer, Jesus was a good man, but he was misunderstood, and his death was tragic. As we entitled this, No, he's the king who came to die. That was entirely his point. It's not like when he stood there in front of the high priest, he was like, oh, I didn't see this coming. This is ending at the cross. The gospel is going to show us over and over and over again, the disciples didn't get it. They kept being so obtuse because they were caught up in what they thought it meant to be the Christ, what they thought it meant to be the Son of God, what they thought it meant that the gospel was going to come and they were going to be delivered. But Jesus was very clear about what it meant from the earliest moment, what it meant. The price of the gospel was his death. The way he would rule and reign was through his death. The way you and I would be saved and find salvation and life would be through his death. There's nothing in there about this was an unforeseen tragedy and poor Jesus, he just got swept up into something that's too bad. The the entire point of the story, he is the king who came to die. And that's going to have implications for you and I as his followers, by the way. It completely reorients life. So the question is, Mark tells us 
Jesus is the Christ, God's Son, the King who came to suffer and die to save His people. And in Him we are saved. But who do I say He is? Do I really believe this? Now, if you're here today or you're listening and you don't know, my goal is not to get you out of peer pressure to say it. Okay, that's, and that's not what Mark does. What I'll say is, join us on a journey. We're going to walk with Jesus for quite a while. We're going to walk with him. And we're going to hear and see, because you're going to see the disciples a couple of times say, it's not just that it's there in, in uh, Mark 8 where Jesus asked it. There's a couple of times when, when Jesus stops the waves and everything else, what's the question the disciples have? Who, who is this? that he speaks to the wind and the waves and they obey him. Several times. In fact, the only people through the first half of the book who get who Jesus is are demons, which doesn't say much about us as a race. <laughs> I'm just pointing out the demons get it and we don't. But if you're here and you don't get it, then what I encourage you, join the journey. But join it honestly. Okay? Don't, don't look for cheap outs journey along, see who he is, see what he says, and embrace it. And, and as they grapple with the question, as the disciples grapple with the question, you and I can grapple with the question, and then at least we can give an informed answer. Now for the rest of us, if you're here, we're going to that other level, and you're a believer, and you're sitting here, this is a time and a thing of encouragement for you and me. Because the gospel is good news. In fact, I wish, uh, you, you know, the, the, the word gospel actually is formed by just taking the word for news and sticking the prefix for good on. Maybe there is one in Greek, I'm unaware of it, but I wish there was one that was like exceedingly aboundingly great news. Because good is almost too weak. This is the best of all possible news. What Tony was talking about at the very beginning of the meeting, that, that what should be shouted from the mountaintop at you and I is judgment and justice. And instead what's shouted from the mountaintop to you and I is shalom, peace, blessedness. What should happen for us is that we should be shut out from the king's presence. What does happen to us is the king says, I've laid out a table, and I want you to come and eat and drink as my people, as my friends. What a privilege that is for every one of us. And so I want to encourage you uh, today to, to do that. We're going to come to the Lord's table, and we're going to uh, enter in together. And if you are here... And again, if, if you're here and you can't answer the question, this meal is for those who know he is the king. This meal is for those who, when asked, who do you say I am, can say confidently, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, um, the one who rules and reigns, you are my savior. If you believe that, then come to the table. You don't have to be a member of our congregation. If you don't believe it, you should let it pass because partaking of this is a proclamation. We believe what Mark said. This is the good news that Jesus is the Christ, the eternal Son of God. So brothers and sisters, let's come to the table of the King, the table 
of the new creation. For what I received from the Lord, I pass on to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Brothers and sisters, come to the table and let us look back, experience the work of the Spirit now, and look forward to the day of consummation. You can go ahead and take the packet and take the bread. Blessed are you, O Lord God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Lord, you are the King of all creation, for you made all things visible and invisible, and you sustain all things by your great power. So Lord, we take this bread with gratitude, knowing that you created us through the word our Lord Jesus Christ, and that you have redeemed us through his broken body. Brothers and sisters, take and eat. Blessed are you, O Lord God, King of the universe, who brings forth fruit from the vine. Lord, you are not only the king of creation, you are the king of the new creation. For through the blood of Christ, you have made us new creations. And through him, you are making all things new. So we take this cup in gratitude, giving you thanks for the blood of Christ, which has redeemed us and purified us and made us to be citizens of his kingdom, heirs of all your covenant promises. Thanks be to God for the blood of Christ. Brothers and sisters, take and drink. Let's stand together for a closing prayer and benediction. Blessed are you, O Lord God, King of the universe, who has given us spiritual food and drink here at your table. Through the work of the Son and the Spirit, we have become your people, knowing and confessing that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God. Holy Spirit, as you anointed Jesus in his days upon the earth, so anoint us that we might walk as his disciples. As you were upon Jesus so that he might proclaim the good news, the gospel, so come upon us so that we might proclaim the good news to others this week. We pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would fill us so that we might be used to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. Lord, we ask all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus, our King who died for us and who is raised and with you and the Father is blessed forever. Amen. 
Amen. And now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, may he equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And God's people say, Amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters, you are blessed in Jesus Christ. Go forth and be a blessing. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.